Howdy folks, today we're going to find out what makes a great portrait with one of the best in the business. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time. In fact, it was 209,233 seconds in 2023 alone. And if you want to know how many hours that is, uh, no idea. Get a calculator. But it's definitely a lot. A lot of hours. Hell yeah, it is. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nuts. And before we get into it, I've got one thing to ask of you. I've noticed that over 65% of our viewers on YouTube and listeners on audio are not subscribed to this channel. And you can really help us out by hitting that subscribe button. It'll help us get even more amazing guests on the show. It's just one click away. It'll take a mere second. Thank you so much. Now, without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, all the way from the home of bourbons, sluggers, and apparently kills, Louisville, Kentucky. Give it up for boudoir portrait and headshot photographer extraordinaire, Ben Markham. Ben, how are you, man? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, I, I may be one of the only kilt wearers in Louisville, Kentucky, but, you know. <laughs> Is that, do you have Scottish, uh, you know, Scottish, uh, like, heritage, or do you just it's like Somewhere, yeah, somewhere in the family line, you know, I did the DNA tests, and there's like, you're, you know, point whatever percent Scottish. Uh, it really started for me because I don't like wearing shorts, and I got hot. And then once I started wearing them, I was like, oh, man, these are like the most comfortable things on the planet. And now I can't go back to pants. <laughs> and I mean, it does get hot where you are in your, your part of the world, I guess, in the summer at least. Yeah, the summers can be brutal. It's, uh, it's hot. It's humid. It's, uh, I try to avoid going outside at every single cost. Well, I think, I think the UK might be the perfect climate, climate for you then because, you know, over here, hot doesn't really... Hot doesn't really happen. The funny thing, though, over here in the UK is, is that I think people get people get the words hot and sunny confused because the minute the sun comes out, it might be only like, you know, barely above freezing. But if it's a blue sky and sun, you can see people, you know, running around in shorts and t-shirts or even topless. And there's me as a Central European going, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like, I'm wearing like, you know, uh, jumpers and like, you know, three layers. Everybody else is running around barely dressed in anything. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect for me. I'm there for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like my wife. Like she, like we have, like I need like several blankets and she, she just have a sheet and that's, you know, that's usually where that's, you know, that's how different we are. Um, so Louisville, Kentucky, um, how did you get into portrait photography or, or headshot photography originally accidentally so i um before picking up a camera i was a sound designer for professional theater and i did that for like 20 years and my early and midlife crisis was leaving the theater industry and initially i was doing website design and i just wasn't really jamming on it wasn't speaking to my soul and i ended up picking up a camera to do some shots for somebody's website. Like I'd taken a, a photography class in high school, like back in 95, 96, just to age myself a little bit. Um, and I was like, you know, it's, it's headshots and stuff. How hard can it be? And uh, I found out real quickly 
that it's harder than one expects. So, but I started having more fun doing the photography side of things than I did the website website side of things. And now it just, it spiraled into where I am now. It's an interesting thing. I've said this many times on the show. Um, there's been so many examples of music or, you know, or sound and photography kind of overlapping. I mean, there's so many, you know, guests that I've spoken to on the show who either are musicians or, you know, used to be into music. And that, that includes myself. I used to be I used to be a session musician back in the day. And uh, and then then the family curse just caught up with me. <laughs> so eventually I did it. I had to get into photography, I guess. But uh, yeah, so sound design, you, you did theater sound? Yes. Yeah, uh, I started getting paid to do sound design and engineering when I was like 15. Um, and, you know, I'd done stuff like in my middle school and whatever, but, you know, I started getting paychecks for it later. Um, and then I I ended up at Actors Theater, ended up, I moved back home. I was in Indianapolis. I moved back to Louisville. I ended up getting a job at Actors Theater of Louisville, which at the time was one of the most respected uh, regional theaters in in the country. We did a new play festival that was you know world renowned and all that jazz. Um, and so I spent a big chunk of my career there. I think I was there for twelve years. Um, I got to world premiere a bunch of shows. So there's a bunch of scripts out in the world with my name listed as sound designer, which is kind of cool. I've never seen one in the wild, but they exist. Uh, so yeah, it, it was a, it was a cool gig. Fantastic. Um, I think, yeah, I think that there is, there's a lot of commonality between, you know, between music and, and photography as, as an art form in general. Do you sometimes draw from your experiences with actors and being in the theater, uh, in, in what you do now? Cause I'm saying this because your portrait photography is very, um, reminiscent of, of the old masters, I would say, but also at the same time, it also has something theatrical to it. Thank you. Uh, I very much pull from my my theater experience and my my creating experience. So I was the kind of sound designer that I liked. I was always in the rehearsal process. So from my day one of a show going into the rehearsal hall, I would be in creating with the actors. So as they're finding their voices with the show and that are, you know, everybody, I, I was in that mix. So I was creating, making mistakes right along with them until, you know, so it was a, it was organic. We had to be able to play off of each other. Um, and it's, I find it to be the same thing in creating portraits or headshots with clients is we have to react. It's not just, I'm going to put you in front of the camera and go, okay, smile, because that's going to be hot garbage juice, as we all know. So, you know, I, I have to be able to kind of ride that emotional wave with them and figure out if I need to get them somewhere else emotionally, what I need to do to help get them to where we're getting the expressions and vibes that we need. And it's, you know, again, this is this is a topic that comes up a lot, um, especially when we talk about headshots on the show. It's, it's this thing, you know, where virtually, and I'm sure it's your experience too, I'm guessing, but certainly in my case, virtually every single person that comes through the door will say like, oh, I'm, you know, I, either I hate having my photograph taken or I'm, I'm totally, unfo- you know, unphotogenic. And and then, the, the you know, the first job is to make them feel comfortable in front of the lens. What's your sort of, 
go-to recipe to chill somebody out when they come in, they may be a little bit nervous. Um, how do you do it? Man, I, I, there's really no cookie cutter because everybody's so wildly different when they walk in the door. It's like I, I have to be able to read them and they, like instantly as soon as and I'm pointing towards the door, like you all can see it. it it's over here. Um, you know, I've got to be able to like read their body language, be a little empathic, and pick up their vibe. And I immediately know if I'm going to be meeting them at a place. It's like, hey, how's it going? It's so come on, let's go get. Or if it's going to be, hey, nice to see you. Uh, Cool. Let me take your stuff. Let's go back to the dressing. So it's even like just that beginning bit of where are they emotionally? How are we going to interact right out of the gate is going to set the tone for the rest of the session. Do you predominantly shoot actors or um, corporates? What's, What's yours to mix? For headshots, a majority of it is corporate now. Uh, when I first started, I had a lot more actors. Um, my pricing was very different at the time. Um, so that's why I get a lot more corporate than I do actors now. I still do get some actors, um, but pr- headshot-wise, primarily corporate. Yeah, I've, I've found that to be true actually here as well. It's, it seems like the, the majority of, um, of headshot clients that I certainly have coming through my door are predominantly corporates. Um, and you're quite right. I think pricing might be at, at the core of that. Yeah. Well, like I, I know what I made in the theater and, and I was working in a professional theater in a full-time gig. And, you know, if I designed, you know, I've been out of the business now for 12 years, uh, 11, 12 years, something like that. But, you know, at the, my last couple shows to, to be in the rehearsal process, do the tech week, be there at opening, you know, have, you know, answer emails through the run of a show if something was going wrong, it's $1,500. You know, that's not a lot, like the industry doesn't pay a lot. So that's, that's no slam on actors for maybe not being able to afford my rates. Like the industry's tough financially. Uh, so I get it. Yeah, absolutely, and it's no different. It's no different in London. You know, London is one of the um, so, you know central places for theatre. Certainly in the UK, if not in Europe, um, competition is high. And of course, you know, there's like I don't know what is it, twelve million people or something. You know, you can you can ride the prices or, or the the salaries to the bottom. You know, in in this in this environment. So so that's you know it's, that's that's uh, that's very similar over here. So how did you get? from the theater to doing headshots in particular, was that, did you have a plan originally or did you just fall into headshots? Uh, when I first started, I had no plan whatsoever. Uh, I knew that I was, was like, okay, if I'm gonna be a photographer, we're gonna go, well, let's just step on the gas and see what happens. And I would literally shoot anything that you would put in front of me. So, you know, babies. I did a couple weddings. A friend needed, like was making like homemade candy to sell. So I was like, yeah, I'll shoot your candy. You know, anything that you put in front of me. And what I was finding was that I couldn't get traction anywhere. You know, it was because I was, everybody's like, well, what do you actually do? And I finally, it, it clicked with me one day. Um, I was like, man, I know headshots. Like, and I still kind of wanted to keep my toe in my theater world. You know, I'd been, I've done it for 20 years. So, you know, that's the world that I knew. Uh, and so that's when it was like, man, let's, let's do headshots. I, I've been looking at them forever. And then I really focused in on the path from there. And people decided that I was okay at it. So, you know, 
It's, I mean, it sounds very, very similar um, to, to my origins, you know, as a portrait photographer. Actually, to be honest with you, you know, I, I was a musician, I'm a session musician. At some point, I simply stepped off of the stage and I started shooting what was happening on the stage. Um, and then I very quickly realized, I mean, in the beginning, you know, you have lots of friends who like, I don't know, put a new band together and they go like, hey man, you know, can you do some band folders for us? Sure, cool, I could do it. And then it got to the point where, you know, somebody says like, oh, how much would you charge for band photos? And I very quickly realized that most people that are in a band don't actually have any money. So, you know, so you can actually like, you know, charge industry standard prices. You know, you, you have to go in super cheap basically. And, you know, I, I thought like, well, okay, well, that's not a way to make a living, obviously, you know. And, and so I then immediately also, I thought like, okay, well, you know, what can I do that's maybe commercially a little bit more viable and actually is fun to shoot and, you know, and, and a modern a modern form of portraiture, essentially. And, yeah, I came across headshots and loved it, you know. Yeah, and the other great thing about headshots, like with so many forms of portrait photography, it's while we feel everybody needs great, beautiful portraits to, to hang on their wall, it people don't necessarily feel the same way. It, it's not a necessity in their life. And so many people have had really crappy photo experiences. The idea of stepping in front of a camera is mortifying. Headshots, they need them. You know, like we're, we're in a, a world now where, you know, LinkedIn and social media and websites and everybody so needs one. So starting a business as a headshot photographer is like, okay, I'm starting a, a business with a product that people actually need. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's true in the commercial world or in the corporate world as, as much as it is, of course, the acting world because actors need headshots because that's how they get auditions at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's a necessity. Um, so what is your, I'm going to especially sort of talk about your, your portrait um, photography, uh, mainly because I really find it very, very stunning. Um, you know, the portrait itself and also the boudoir side of it, I find it really interesting. You, you really have a really interesting style. It's, it's very, like I said earlier, it's very kind of, very painterly. The lighting is gorgeous. What's your creative process when it comes to portrait photography in particular? I stare at a lot of other art and, and things that, uh, that'll make me stop and lose a sense of time for a minute first. So, you know, I got... Uh, we Louisville's uh, fortunate to have a great art museum uh, here uh, in the city. And then Cincinnati's just like an hour up the road. And there's a gorgeous museum there, a couple of them. Um, so just being able to spend time with the pieces is really the beginning of my creative process. Uh, it, it letting the pieces that speak to me get into my head and rattle around a little bit. Uh, and it that starts to inform what I want to do when I'm photographing either clients or if I'm doing personal projects, um, you know, then from there, like if I'm working with a client, I talk with them beforehand about what their hopes and dreams are, uh, for their portrait session, what they're envisioning, you know, not everybody is going to be, uh, into fully formal, uh, you know, putting on their, their tuxes and their gowns and all the good jewelry. A lot of, like I just did a couple the other day. They're like, man, we're casual. And, you know, like they showed up like in flannels and jeans. And I'm like, cool. 
you know, that's so how do we take this sort of classic style and translate that to a very contemporary dress and make it work and like it, it, and so I'm I'm thinking through their personality and all that, how to incorporate all of that into orchards and what we got is actually really gorgeous. I'm thrilled with what we created with them. Um yeah, that, that sounds all like a, a lot of artistic uh, psychobabble there, Feral Monet said. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the thing I always, you know, I always wonder when I look at portraiture, you know, just, just like yourselves, um, is I wonder like, okay, where, you know, where, what's the origin of that idea? Is it basically, you know, you look at a, a portrait, you know, like a, a painting, for instance, you go like, okay, I want to create something like that. And that's where it starts. Or, um, you know, or is it more like guided by... The client, for example, like does, you know, does a client come in and they have a very specific idea of what they want, or what is the what's the process there usually? How do you find that balance? I think it's a really a combo of both. So at this point, a majority of people that hire me for my portrait and my boudoir work are hiring me because of my style. So they they've been on the website, they've been on my social media, and they see what I do. Um, and honestly, I book more boudoir than I do classic portraits, which is not what I anticipated when I ended up down that path. Uh, but I'm getting hired for the style. So then from there, she's boudoir client I had yesterday. Um, she wanted it. She, she did not help me with prep work at all. A lot of times I'll ask for, you know, what are you planning on wearing? Just cause I like to, you know, let it percolate in my head and she sent me nothing. So one piece that she showed up with that she wanted to wear, it was a red lingerie set and then a leather harness. So my brain immediately kicks into you're doing red with a leather harness. That to me, I feel like there needs to be some attitude in the face, not necessarily bitchy, but this isn't going to be soft and demure. It doesn't. So like I, at that point, the, the styling was kind of dictating how I approached the vibe of those images versus when we got to doing some nude work with fabric drape, those felt far softer. And so that styling really dictated the the vibe of the images. Yeah. Because that's the thing about boudoir uh, photography is there's a really wide range from, you know, like, like you said, very soft draping materials to, um, what's the word, to like a, a lot of a, a much harder look, you know, the, the leather and um, what is it? Vinyl type of look for the lack of a better word. Yeah. And it's like, and for me, the, the challenge with a lot of the modern looks is because I, I really only use the term boudoir with my work is because it's what SEO, you know, people know to Google it. You know, I, I don't think, I mean, I envision boudoir. I'm envisioning, you know, people pulling on various garments and leaning off of couches with ankles over heads and stuff which is cool it's just not my jam so you know trying to figure out how to make the more modern uh bits of styling fit within sort of that classic vibe so you kind of get the best of both worlds is an interesting uh but fun challenge hey let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode platypod platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity with their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, 
I'm surrounded by various portable products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. Yeah, it, right. I mean, it really is interesting because that's exactly what I uh, what I thought when I looked at your uh, boudoir photography in particular. I sort of thought, well, it's actually, I mean, from the boudoir photography that I've seen and, you know, some, some of um, some of former guests that, that I've had on, um, it's, this is really, your photography is really different because it is, like, I think half the time, it's, it's just an amazing portrait and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's possibly not necessarily what you would traditionally associate with boudoir photography in a sense. Right. And, and thank you. And it, yeah, I mean, it, if, if it weren't for SEO, I don't know that I would call it boudoir. And, you know, I can do some of the boudoir, you know, I certain I get clients who really want to do, um, traditional boudoir sort of looks and say, and I can do that. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't scratch that artistic itch for me quite as much, but I'm happy to do it for people too. Cause ultimately if somebody commissions me, I'm there to create for them. If, you know, if I need, want to create something else, I'll do it on my own time. Yeah. That's ultimately, that's just ultimately what it boils down to. You know, if, if, a, if a client has a particular idea that they want to, you know, create, then, okay, well then, you know, fine. Um, other words, you know, I know this, like, you know, uh, half the time, well, not half the time, most of the time, really, I have clients who basically, you know, just like you mentioned, you look at your website and they really like what they see and they come in, they don't really have necessarily a very clear idea other than they like what they've seen on the website and they sort of kind of want that, you know, but that is a very wide range of what it could be. <laughs> right. And, and I try to ask a lot of questions, you know, and, you know, I'll, when I'm doing a consult with somebody, I flip through images and it, that I've done and go, tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. And then once I have some ideas of what they do like, I can, we can get a little bit more in depth and I can go, okay, what, without inflating my ego or inflate my ego, that's fine too. What is it that speaks to you about this image? Just because that lets me know where they are and what they're actually looking for in their portraits. Uh, I'm, when I'm commissioned to create work, I, I think it's really important to really get to the heart of, of what it is that, that they're looking for. Um, because that's ultimately how we make money. You know, if I, if I can actually create what speaks to their soul, I get paid. <laughs> exactly. And also it makes for a happy clients. You know, that's, that's the thing, yes. like, you know, especially you know, as we, if we come back to the, uh, to the beginning of this conversation, we said like, okay, well, most people walk in being a little bit nervous, you know, with the attitude, like, you know, I've never had a great photo taken on myself, then you really want to try and turn them around so that, you know, they leave the studio thinking, I had a great experience. This was awesome. I can't believe it looks that great. You know, that's really what you want. And so I use a very similar technique, um, to what you just described, but I, I do it as part of, uh, as part of the headshot session. So, um, what I tend to do is I tend to shoot some burners is what I call them. Like, you know, I start, I get, 
I get the client in front of the lens, you know, we start shooting, uh, maybe for, you know, I don't know, like five minutes, six minutes, something like that. And then I, I pull them out and I basically have them come over to the screen and we'll go through the shots that I've taken up to that point. And as I, as they look at the screen and they flip through it, I watch them and I'll basically figure out what it is that they like and what it is that they don't like. Because everybody's got, I don't know, you know, a preferred side or a particular look or something, whatever. And so I can, uh, either, and then through conversation and through watching them very closely, I can figure out what it is that they don't like. And then I get them back in front of the lens and I just don't do what they don't like. <laughs> it's really as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and and God bless shooting tethered. I, I I everything that I shoot is tethered for that very reason. You know, headshot sessions, I do it with the portrait and boudoir sessions as well. More with the portrait and boudoir, I do it because if I get a really great image, it's really nice to be able to turn the screen around and go. Did I keep trying to not curse on your podcast? So if something <laughs> slips, I apologize. Uh, okay, that's even better. Uh, but I did be able to turn the screen and go, this is amazing. And then they see that it's amazing and it's a confidence builder for them. Cause like once they know that there's something really good in the can, all of the pressure goes away. Now we're just having fun the rest of the day. Um, so yeah, I, I love being able to headshots, portraits, boudoir. It makes life so much better. And see, I mean, that's, that's even more important uh, when you're talking about boudoir photography, because people, I think you know, people must feel a lot more exposed because not only are they having a, 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 you know, a picture taken of themselves, but also they're not really wearing many clothes. So it's even more, even more exposing. So getting that, you know, extra bit of a confidence booster is super important in that case. Absolutely. And they also, you know, like I'm, I play with a lot of heavy shadow uh, and things, so they can't see you know, when I'm hitting them with strobes, they don't know what shadow is doing. So once they see things and they, they feel like it, that just, it makes them feel better. I, I had a whole other sentence that tried to come out there and it just stopped right up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing, everybody's self-conscious and, you know, again, in, in a, yeah. in a situation where, you know, you have any picture taking, I mean, if you're not, unless you're a professional model and you're, you kind of, you're used to taking your clothes off, basically in front of the camera, but, the vast majority of people are not. And so, you know, even just having their face photographed is, is an act, you know, rather than, you know, compared to like imagining that, you know, you're, you're taking most of your clothes off um, and you're, right. you know, literally exposing yourself. What do they say in British English? Warts and all, you know, to the camera. <laughs> and it's like, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's, man, it's, it's super important to, to build up, you know, build up the confidence. Um, Okay, so one of the central things I want to talk about uh, with you today is what the difference is, or let's say what makes a great portrait as opposed as opposed to a good one, in your opinion. Does it make you feel? You know, it's so. There's uh, one of the one of the first portraits that actually made me go, "Oh yeah, portraits! I want to do this style of stuff." Um, when I had it printed and I hung it in my old studio and got it in a frame, I had hung it up on the wall and I went and I sat back on the couch for a minute just to, you know, kind of get the vibe for it. And like 45 minutes later, 
I looked at my watch and realized I just lost track of time, just staring at the piece. And it is like that piece made me feel in such a way like, okay, you know, that is gorgeous, whether it's technically gorgeous or whatever, I don't care in the moment. It's touching my soul. So it, to me, that has value. And, you know, not just my work, you know, there's, you know, countless times I've been in museums or, you know, I have, you know, my wife and I collect art and we have friends that collect art and being able to, you know, just sit in front of a piece and get lost in it, uh, is, is really kind of magical. I don't, I don't know of, of another way to describe it. Um, you know, and there's various things that can, can make us, you know, feel about it. Um, you know, you've, you've got my, my dog back over here. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, that picture, uh, of SETI, uh, it gets me, you know, I, I know that look on his face and, you know, I just, it, if it makes me feel it's a good piece. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I mean, what you can see is, uh, right on this side over here, um, I have two portraits of, of my dog when he was a puppy. Um, one is where, where I'm holding him and then, uh, another one where, my wife is holding him, and so they're sort of they're kind of family portraits, but they they in, they involve our baby, which is our dog, you know. And it's it's like it's one of these things um, that was quite important to me to shoot that when you know when he was still. I mean, yeah, he was probably about maybe five months old or something, or maybe five, five or six months old when I took those. So he's a spaniel, and his 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 tail wasn't fully fluffy at that point, so relatively young, but. And, and see, but you know, just like the the memories that you're having with that, and his tail wasn't there. Is like there there's emotion based behind that, and I I think that even if the viewer of a piece doesn't know the initial emotion behind the art created, they're still gonna feel something. They're they're gonna be able to look at a piece when there's feeling and go and just feel more, as opposed to you know, it was just a random selfie or something. Like yeah, it's a selfie you captured the moment, but it's not. There, there's there's a difference, and it's also extremely subjective, of course. You know, um, some people might look at at a particular portrait and not really necessarily feel anything, but then to other people, they might associate it with a certain thing. Like I remember, um, for myself, for example, I remember. Um, so I, the, you know, on a very personal level, so I used to not appear in photographs for about ten to fifteen years of my life because um, I was very self-conscious of the fact that I had an issue with my front teeth. So my upper teeth were basically uh, starting to grind down. And so the smile line was basically inverted, you know. And so, so I was very extremely self-conscious of that at the time. And so I sort of always made sure that either I wasn't a photograph or uh, if, if it was inevitable, I would like keep my mouth shut basically, <laughs> you know. And... Um, and it was only after I had my teeth fixed that all of a sudden, you know, having a photograph taken became a completely different experience, you know. Um, and uh, and so, you know, and then, of course, I got, you know, I sort of got into photography and, um, and it's still, like, still to this day, I do a lot of self-portraits, um, not because I'm particularly vain or anything, but mainly because a I practice certain things like if I you know if I if I figure out like a, you know a new lighting setup you know I'll I'll try and obviously I've abused 
used and abused my wife and my children so many times over the last 15 years and have forced them in front of the camera that they're not necessarily always that cooperative <laughs> these days, you know? So, so I, I, you know, I am my own willing victim when it comes to this, but, um, but so, you know, and I, I sort of, I, t I try to create things that are maybe a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit comical or whatever. And, you know, sometimes I look, I look at portraits and think like, wow, you know, it's really interesting because like 15 years ago, there wouldn't have been a chance in hell you would have got me in front of a camera. Not a chance, you know, and now I feel very, uh, very comfortable with it, you know, um, and I think that's that's very often what that's the sort of emotional state or states that that a client goes through if if they're not you know if, if they never really like to have their their portrait taken you know and then they come to you and then see the end result and go wow that's I never thought that was even possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other things that we now kind of battle in that world is body dysmorphia and social media expectations. Um, so it, I think social media has been very bad for uh, the human psyche on a lot of levels and, and people's feelings about themselves uh, are, it's really manifesting. And so we, that's one of the places where we get to be a little bit of psychologist in doing what we do as well. Uh, because it's unfair of them to themselves to compare themselves to unrealistic expectations when, you know, a lot of the people that you're seeing on social media or media, whatever, have teams of stylists and makeup artists, and they didn't get that photograph in one shot. You know, it's all these other things that then our clients, our, our real people are trying to compare against them. And Photoshop, uh, you know, plain and simple. Yeah. And now AI on top of that as well. Yeah. Absolutely, like that. There's there's no limit. <laughs> I find it, you know, I find it. Yeah. You mentioned uh, social media. I find it really, um, I find it hilarious when I see my kids taking selfies of themselves on their phone because you know, one hundred percent guarantee there's going to be some some filter that's going to be uh, applied, you know, for for some some effect. And I always think that go well. You don't, you know, I think yeah, but you, you you don't actually look like that. That's not. And what's that going to do to you in, in 30 years when you look back? You know, I know what happens when I look at, you know, yearbook photos of me from high school or whatever. Um, you know, and my hairline wasn't quite as far back and whatever. But I, I didn't have filters on it to then skew it, you know, now. That would, I'd be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, you give them the tools. They are going to use them. That's a, you know, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. I would have, I would have totally used them. I just want to mess about it now. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, this is, you know, if 15 years ago or like maybe 20 years ago, if I'd had the Photoshop skills I have now, I would have just, you know, fixed my teeth in every single photograph. Yeah, no problem. Just let me do this. <laughs> but, you know, back then, oh my God, people should on film. You know, that's how long ago that was. <laughs> what? Yeah. I, I, I do miss film a little bit, but then on the other side, I don't miss it at all. So it, it's a, it's a love-hate thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, my my grandmother and my dad used to shoot on film, and um, and so you know, I grew up with the smells of of developers and chemicals, you know, and I don't miss that. I have to say, you know, they, I mean, there is some, there's a little bit of nostalgia that I have um, for that, of course, you know, 
um, that's part of it. But, you know, would I want to do that on a daily basis? Definitely not. You know, 100%. No. Um, as a, like, you know, I don't know, almost like as a hobby? Yeah. Once in a while, for sure. Yeah, and I also, I, I live with a husky, so there's no chance of keeping any bit of film without it. Every photo would have bits of dog on it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly it. Um, So how do you approach lighting in your in your portraiture? Because, you know, that's the, the one thing that's, I think that's really noticeable. Like, your lighting is so accurate and beautiful. What's your, like, what is your concept in general? For a lot of the work, you know, I am very inspired uh, by the Dutch masters. Uh, I, I tend to uh, gravitate towards a little bit more of a moody, dramatic style in my work. I, I really like shadow. Um, so it really starts there. Um, and it, what the image is supposed to be is going to dictate how moody uh, I'm going to be about like I did a portrait of my mother I guess two years ago now that she wanted for over her fireplace uh, and it's like I I know where that's going in her house so that can't be quite as moody and not with the vibe that she's going for um, but yeah it just it, I, I really like that one two big light feel uh, of things you know I, I we were teaching a class me and another photographer teaching a class in here a couple of weeks ago and I, you know, sent to the class. I was like, if a window was good enough for Rembrandt, it's good. You know, that one light sort of vibe is good enough for me. Um, so yeah, that, that's where it really starts is just, um, that sort of inspiration and, you know, not, not only the, the Dutch, uh, masters, but, you know, looking at, you know, John Singer Sargent and Frank Dubinek and some of the impressionist guys as well, you know, who were typically using, if they were doing portraiture inside uh you know it would be a window light coming from one side to really do most of the work for them so um i think i've just stared at enough of it now that it's burned itself into my brain yeah and it's i often think that you know in a sense you can very easily overcomplicate things with lighting setups you know because there's no end to how many lights you could put on someone you know and before you know it you're like you're five lights in and you go uh I'm not really sure whether I really actually need any of that. <laughs> you know, when I was first starting, uh, there were some great photographers who were just starting to push into the education scene uh, who were really focusing on lighting and they would go, okay, so this is a 12 light setup. And I was completely overwhelmed. I was like, 12? How do you, it's one person? Why on earth do you need 12? And it worked great for them, but I, I would just, oh, that's too complicated. I, I don't want to think that much. You know, two, three tops and nine times out of 10, I'm I'm good. That's the thing, uh, you know, and it's, I have a, a similar experience because on one hand, I love the simplicity of like a one light setup. I just love it. It's got something really, um, really natural to it, you know, um, and it's, there's a natural beauty to it. Um, but at the same time, I also like this of Joe McNally put 24 four lights in the background and light every nook and cranny with like X amount of different filters and make it look incredible, you know, but then just put one light on the model. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. It, you know, and you're saying that and it, you, 
I thought about food. It's like, I, I'm really the same way with food. It's like, I'm, I can do big, extravagant, bigly boo, whatever. Uh, but I really tend to go to really just simple, beautiful ingredients when I'm cooking, you know, like, so I really just get the essence. I, I never thought about it that way before. So evidently you put me on the, uh, on the couch this afternoon and I have to go explore my artistic brain a little bit more. <laughs> well, I mean, food is a great analogy for so many different things. I mean, it works with music, um, as well, you know, um, I was used to say that when I used to teach, uh, jazz harmony. So jazz chords, essentially, you know, uh, because you've got, you know, you get kids coming in with no experience jazz or, or, or people who predominantly, you know, listen to pop music, um, but like Western contemporary pop music or whatever you know, or rock music, and they're just not used to hearing all of these, you know, color tones in those chords. And to that, you know, very often it sounds, it sounds weird. It sounds like, you know, there's a lot of dissonance going on and it just sounds weird. And so the way I used to describe it, I used to completely compare it to foods. You know, I used to say like, look, you know, your basic major or minor chords, like your basic three note chords, that's like your basic, super simple um, pasta sauce. Like that you can make if you've got nothing left in the cupboard. You know, you can you need a tin of tomatoes um, and some olive oil and and that's basically it. I mean, and some salt and pepper. That's it. You can make a very basic sauce. It's gonna taste pretty bland, but it'll work. It'll get you through your dinner, right? Um, but if you have other stuff, you can throw in some other things. You know, you can throw in some oregano or you can throw in some chili or whatever it may be. And each one of these ingredients has a very specific effect like chili will make it taste hot you know um and uh, just like in music you, know, you have a basic chord and you throw in an extra note and that note will basically enhance that chord and each additional note that you throw in will have a very specific effect like this note will make the chord sound bluesy and that will sound make it sound you know i don't know slightly jazzy or whatever you know and so and then of course you can throw in oregano, chili, and I don't know, something else, you know, and, uh, and you get these, 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 um, additional effects. And the same thing is true with, with chords, you know, you don't, you can, you can add one note, but you can also add three extra notes and then see what happens then. And so, you know, food was always like a great G, C, and D. That's, that's, <laughs> that's all you need, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, in fact, well, you but just, you Oh, I was going to say, but like using the food with the food analogy, uh, you know, with taking it back to portrait photography. So my my lighting setup and everything is really pretty much the foundation of my portrait recipe. It's like here here's my base flavors. Yeah, you know, here's the roux, if you will, and then hmm. the the extra herbs and spices and and all of that jazz is for me it comes from the person that I'm photographing. It's like, how can I tweak with your expression? If your eyes do something big and I started with headshot photography. So paying attention to expression is really in, ingrained in me. So it's not uncommon when I'm working with somebody to keep them in a pose for a second and guide them through seven, eight, nine different expressions to see what different story that can tell. That's, that's the, the extra, there, there's a little tarragon in there and there's a little, you know, whatever to to really change the the flavor of the image little expressions little tweaks for me um you know slight tilt of the head you know whatever it can really change the entire vibe um and i i find that very interesting 
and a fun fun way to, to muck around with the recipe. How do you? We're going to make uh, people hungry on this. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. That's 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 the that's the side podcast <laughs> on the Camera Shake Network. There'll be a food podcast next. <laughs> Which you know, you mentioned roux, right? I know what I'm going to have for dinner this weekend. That's for sure. Bring out the gumbo, one hundred percent. I it, it's right time. I Mardi Gras technically ending, but it still works. Yeah. Oh, it'd be it, perfect. Look, gumbo all year round in this household, one hundred percent. That is happening. <laughs> nice. My kids, my my kids are huge fans as well, so it's you know it helps. Yeah, that's it. I spent some time in New uh, in New Orleans, so that's that's where all of that influence comes comes from originally. Oh, beautiful! I've I've yet to to get down there, and we we keep talking about it, and just keep not going. So I need to remedy that problem. One hundred percent. Yeah, even if it's just a you know for a tour through you know a variety of of restaurants, it's definitely worth it. Well, I've said absolutely. So, um, how do you how do you guide um, your your client or your sitter, whatever you want to call it? Uh, how do you guide them through different um, expressions? What's your sort of vocabulary that you use for that? So I, I I I never stop talking uh, when we're working. So I'm constantly you know try moving your head this way. You know, it's direct direction would be what it is. You know, go here, go here, go here, and then because I've spent this session getting a vibe for them, I get information from them. You know, I, what gets said in these walls uh, does not leave these walls. So we, we've heard some stuff in here. Um, I can start using that to actually touch personal notes. And so they'll, uh, they'll react without knowing, you know, before they realize they reacted. And so there's some beauty that happens there. Um, I will often do things, you know, I have no shame, you know, at, at 46 years old now, I don't care anymore. Uh, so I will do things to elicit a laugh and, and shoot through that. Um, but it, it's all little tweaks, unless I'm going for a big laugh where, you know, I can be, you know, really calm and really mellow. And then just throw something completely asinine and get a big pop, but I normally won't go for the big pop until I know I've got everything else I want mellow uh, in the can. But it's it, it's treating people like people. It, it's it's talking, um, you know, and every, as I was saying earlier, you know, every person is different. So I, I have to be with them emotionally the entire time. And that's that's where those genuine range of expressions come from. It's also like I typically won't do because of that more than one or two portrait or boudoir sessions in a week um, because emotionally for me being the the introverted me that I am, uh, it takes a lot out of me to do that. So I need time to recharge uh, on the back. Headshot sessions are a little bit different. I can do a few more of those, but a, a, a full scale portrait or boudoir session will make me sleep for a day yeah so you're right it is quite draining because i think you know generally speaking um i mean obviously when it comes to working with other humans you know photographing other humans it, it does require a large amount of you know sensitivity and um and, and really just knowing how to connect with that person because as you say you know people are different and and people connect on different levels almost you know 
or in different ways. Um, and I think it's always easier when you're just naturally an, an extrovert sort of person. Um, but artists often are not. And then, as you say, it does, it, you know, it does take a lot out of you. I feel that too. I feel like sometimes you know, I'm, I'm quite clearly putting on an act when I'm when I'm with when I'm with a client. You know, I'm still myself, but I'm sort of I'm like sort of a hyper real version of myself. You know, and then when they go, I'm like, whoa, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm a professional wrestling nerd, so um, sorry. Uh, but all of the best pro wrestling gimmicks throughout history, it was that performer just turned up to 11. Uh, and it's this, the same thing in, in working with a client. It's like, I'm still me, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be anybody else, but I do have to, you know, turn the gain up just a little bit to, to be there. And, wow, but it, it is, it's draining, um, it's not uncommon for me to take a nap directly after a session. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about uh, so post processing because uh, obviously, your, I mean, your images look perfect. What's your process when it comes to um, like post processing your your images? Sure, um, it's it's really fairly simple, I think. So, uh, I shoot tethered into Capture One. So I will do any basic raw edits in Capture One uh, before I move image into Photoshop. And then I will do, you know, basic cleanup with your, you know, healing brushes and clone stamps and, and what have you. Um, depending on the size of the image, I will either do a localized dodge and burn to smooth some things out. Uh, or if it's only going to be like an 8 by 10 or 8 by 12 I just go straight to frequency separation. Um, then I do a, kind of a global dodge and burn, um, to create contrast and, you know, accentuate highlights and things. Uh, I do a color grading, um, you know, set, and I, I use a lot of luminosity masks in my color grading. Um, I've got some basic actions that I've built that are like, I know these are going to work for some of my setups. So especially like if I'm doing client work, I can just, instead of rebuilding, you know, nine, 10 layers and luminosity mask on each, every time I can run the action, um, little bit of sharpen and send it home. It's a, it's a pretty basic process really. Do you deliver, uh, the images as prints or as, as digital files? Um, I, I do every, well, both. So, uh, anything that a client purchases, they will also get the web resolution digital file of that. Um, if a client does go, I really only want digitals and you know, which for some reason still happens, uh, I will sell them to them, but they get sold and, uh, at the same prices that I sell my photo albums. It's like, you know, you can buy the album and you're going to get the web res, or I can just sell you the web res and no overhead for me. And you're going to get the same thing. So, you know, whatever. So I've I've been following your uh, your Instagram a little bit and um and I I love your reels and um, there's one one particular thing where I think you're you're going through um uh, sort of rebuilding your studio setup um in behind you uh, which I found quite interesting I think you, you sort of redressed the room uh how I mean how long did that take because it 
on the reel, obviously, it, it looks like, you know, it took 10 seconds, but um, what, what went into that? Uh, so much mess. So um, the studio that I'm in now, it'll be three years in July that I've been in this space. Um, my old studio, which I, I loved, uh, but had to move for various reasons. When I had to leave that space, I still didn't have a new space. Well, I was studio homeless for uh, a couple months, uh, which was disconcerting. Um, and when I took this place, it was rough. It had been sitting vacant for two years. Uh, the walls were a canary yellow and it, the, the ceiling was all like the, uh, the grade school drop ceiling tiles. Uh, there, there was a lot of stuff that had to happen in here. So over the matter of about um, six weeks, me and my folks, my, my, my parents were really helpful in doing this, uh, did the transformation on the place. And I was still taking clients while the transformation was happening. So to, to my first several clients who were in the space, thank you all for being cool because this place was awful. So drywall dust everywhere. You, yeah, I was going to ask you whether you like rented a, a different, like another studio, just to just to get on with with shoots or. Uh. No, just had to make it work. Um, you know, it's my my old school. You know, old school punk rock me came out and was like, "We're just going with it." Um, and you know, because I this place at the time it increased my overhead to such a place that. I couldn't go rent another space. Like I, I took a big risk, uh, in stepping up to this space. This space is about 2,200 square feet. Um, so I, I wasn't planning on spending this much, um, but it's worked out. I'm in a good area and all of that. So sometimes no risk, no reward, but no, it, it was rough. It took some time and there's still stuff to do. I still need to do, uh, the bathrooms. I just got burned out on being covered in construction dust. So, uh, I finally bought the paint and all of that. I'm getting ready to to start the the bathroom renovations. How did you fix the ceiling? Because um, obviously, I mean, I saw I saw on Instagram, I saw the original ceiling, um, and then and now, of course, your ceiling looks amazing. How did you how did you do that? These are plastic tiles. Uh, I had I wasn't sure what I was going to do, um, and I just did some googling and these came up and they are just literally little thin plastic, uh, tiles. They're expensive for what they are. Uh, but it was like, I'd rather spend the money and have it look like something than feel like I'm in second grade again. Um, so, and I'm trying to remember the name of the website where I bought them now and it's completely walked out of my head, but they do a bunch of different styles too. You can get ones like with like press 10 and all sorts of stuff. It's a, it's a really cool product. Yeah, plus you know, if, if with the sort of the traditional drop ceiling, like office ceiling type of you know uh, fake ceiling type of type of tiles, you, you really always have to make sure that that doesn't show up in the shot. First of all, and secondly, it's also just you know it's just unsightly to to look at. So that's that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, and you you can't clean them. It's like if if these get dusty, dirty, I can come through with a Swiffer and just take care of it. So I just. I, I wanted this place to feel and any of my, my spaces, I, I want them to feel special. I, I, the space is as much a part of the vibe that, uh, you know, of what I do as anything else. Like people need to walk in the space and feel comfortable 
and also like it's elevated, you know, they need to feel like they're doing something special. Um, so I, I needed the space to, to help them with that. Like I think about some of the nicer restaurants or things that we'll go to, uh, you know, you walk into a, uh, a waffle house or whatever and you're like, yeah, it's a restaurant, whatever. Uh, you walk into a, a really nice restaurant that's decorated well and all that. And you just, it enhances the, the experience. So I wanted to do that same vibe with my space. And that's, that's super important. You know, um, that's, I think uh, to me, that's, that's really important because it differentiates, you know, what, what you do from what 90% of other people do, you know, where it's like you come to this. I mean, that's actually, to be honest with you, that, that's the reason why I really like shooting from home. So I shoot uh, my shooting spaces at home and, um, there, there are advantages and disadvantages to that, but the advantage is a, that I'm completely in control, you know, over what this space looks like, but also, um, it, it creates a certain level of comfort for, you know, when I have headshot sessions uh, or headshot clients come in, they feel a little bit more comfortable rather than being in like, you know, a, um, clinical looking white traditional studio with bare walls and maybe an infinity wall or something like that. It's, it's immediately a little bit intimidating. Uh, whilst right. here it's, you know, comfortable. There's a, comf there's a couch, you know, you can sit down, have a coffee. I can get them relaxed. You know, we can take it, you know, uh, one step at a time. And so it, it really makes a huge difference. If it wasn't for a stupid dog who really doesn't like other people. <laughs> <laughs> Poor pup. I know, I know. He's always a good talking point, though. He's, he's, not, um, he's, not, he's not an aggressive dog. Um, but he, um, well, it takes a little while to get on his friendly side, let's put it this way. So I have to, I have to keep him out in the hallway. And so it's immediate, but it's immediately a talking point, you know, um, where, cause he does look, I mean, it's just one of these things. Yeah. He actually does look super cute, but <laughs> and people naturally go, Ooh, doggy. And I'm always like, Oh, don't do that. That's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you <know? laughs> See that you're gonna get me started to talk dog training, and then you'll you, the podcast will never end. So that that's a oh, uh, right yeah, that's a, a found passion that I evidently have after after working with. I keep doing that after working with him for two years. Yeah, uh, I'm I got quite into training. So uh, yeah, yeah, training is a, training is a difficult thing. I'll tell you. I mean, you know, my dog is a, he's a frequent visitor of this podcast because often if you listen really closely, you can, you can hear his little pause on the, on the wooden floor <laughs> moving through. It's usually he's out in the hallway, but he, uh, he manages to break in every, every now and then. And then you can hear him just like jump off the couch or walk through, you know, I think he's actually been on the podcast a couple of times. He certainly was, um, I made a I made a video for Platypot, uh not too long ago, and uh, he was he was one of the main the main features in it. <laughs> so you know, if anybody's interested, yeah. If, it, if I wasn't doing this today, Cedric would be here with me. I just knew that he will often, if I'm doing a video call or anything, and he can't hear the other person, he's like, "Who are you talking to?" And so he gets a little he gets a little talky. So <laughs> he, he he went to daycare today. So oh okay. I saw. I mean, I saw. Um, I saw your, your. You've added uh, pet photography to your portfolio as well. Re more more recently, I guess. Um, yes. That's super interesting. Yeah, you know, it's. I 
I keep tossing around the idea of going to go train to be a dog trainer officially. And the dog training world is kind of the wild west. There's no real guidance and certifications. Uh, and I don't want to be, like, if I'm going to do it, I actually want to learn all the correct stuff. So I was talking with a guy that I was considering ooh, hiring to, to be a mentor. And he's like, you really need to get your hands on as many dogs as possible because all different breeds all different situations and everything they're all going to be different the more experience you have with that the better trainer you're going to be and he was like why don't you do pet photography and then i was like why don't i do pet photography i not even just from a training standpoint i know what i spend on my dog let's get other people in so that was really kind of the the impetus behind it um if you're watching the reels somebody actually just did a, a post the other day it's like, oh, I would bring my dog in, but you know, they, they get too excited when they leave the house. And I was like, do you want tips on how to keep your dog from getting excited? I'm not leaving the house. I'll do videos. And she's like, yeah. So I'm going to be doing some dog training videos related to pet portrait photography on the, the reel soon. Um, so it's like all my worlds are starting to combine. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily unusual. It's, um, I, in fact, I think it's, it's, it's probably quite, you know, it's it's quite common, especially in photography. Like I, I've spoken to, I've spoken to so many people. Um, you know, when it comes to like toy photography, you know, people who just love action figures, you know, and Marvel comics and Star Wars, and like naturally gravitate towards shooting toys, and just sometimes with amazing results. You know, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, the likes of Jesse Fire Eisen, for example, or Dave the Maker. Like these guys are great incredible imagery you know with yeah. the toys you know and yet this is art you know i mean the amount of effort that goes into like i don't know building these dioramas and like even 3d printing and oh it's just my mind's completely blown but of course the same thing is really true for um for pets you know for animals dogs in particular um, i remember having a really great conversation with katie one uh, one time about you know about her very obsession with dogs and so that's it's it's no coincidence that she's a pet photographer because she's just obsessed with dogs, you know, and that's so it's it's quite natural to be drawn to that, I think. Absolutely, and, and thinking about it from the social media standpoint, you know, we as photographers for years and years and years have gone we we post our photos and like look at my photo, aren't they pretty? Aren't they pretty? And and I'm guilty, I still do it. Um, but that's not really giving giving any real value to our audience, uh, you know, other than, oh, okay, that's, that's really, okay. You know, as opposed to if there are things that we can help them with and tie it into our photography stuff, now we're giving them value. Now more people are going to remember us more. So, you know, me knowing how to help somebody keep their dog from getting excited when they leave the house brings value to a community and when they are ready to go get pet portraits done they're going to go oh yeah the big guy in the kilt and you know, well at least hopefully so yeah and it's also i think it's funny especially when we're talking social media i think it's, you know it's it's really it's introducing another character into that world which is um which is always fun you know um my daughter's been on that journey with my youngest daughter's been on a journey with me ever since she was very little because it's just you know we hang out together a lot and so she used to come with me um on photo shoots and you know obviously she's she's stood in for me. now she's at the point where she literally just she looks at your phone or at her phone and then you know every time uh 
every time she she realizes I'm ready to to uh, click the shutter button, she just pop up like a perfect model. And then, you know, as soon as the flash gone, she's like back on her phone, pose back on her phone. <laughs> you know, so that's that's her. But she's also uh, she's developed an interest in photography, um, particularly in dog photography. Um, as I've, I mean, I've told this story on it, I think several times on this podcast. But but uh, we went we have lakes around where we live here. And uh, obviously, they are popular with dog walkers. And so just, you, you can find any breed of dog, you know, being walked there. Um, and so we went to the lakes one time, and um, I think I got her. Oh, no, she was she was using a, a Fuji. Yeah, she was using a, a, what was it, a Fuji X100F or something that I gave her. And so I had a different camera. We, we walked to the lakes, and we were talking, and she said, oh, yeah, I really like photography. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, you know. Um, what, what do you like? What do you like shooting? Like, the, you know, she goes, "Oh, well, I don't like shooting people." I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. What do you like shooting? She goes, "Like, I like shooting dogs." I'm like, okay, that sounds good. You know, uh, perfect. And then she said, "Like, oh, I want to, I want to shoot some dogs around the lakes here." And I said to her, well, "Okay, sounds great, but just be mindful, you know, and ask the owner first whether it's okay to photograph the dog because some people can get a little bit, you know, annoyed or although that being said, when you have a little girl with a camera walk up to to anybody and ask them whether they can photograph anybody, everybody will say yes. You know, it's, yeah, instant yes. Instant yes, yeah, exactly. Um and then but the problem is then they're trying to post their dogs, you know, and the and the dog's like really not into that. <laughs> they're like, not this way, not this way. You know, and uh so that's that's usually where it goes pear shaped. But um, but I thought, of course, I thought. I mean, she was like, oh, she's then maybe not eight, nine or something, and uh, and I thought, okay, of course, as a parent, I'm going to have to go and make that introduction and ask the question and stuff. But far from it, she was so full of confidence. She literally went from one person to the next and just went, excuse me, so do you mind if I, you know, photograph your dog? And of course, everybody went, oh, yes, of course, yeah. So she got some good shots as well. That's fantastic. I know. So yeah, uh, so with dog photography, there's one thing I always wonder when it comes to dog photography, and this is like really something I haven't figured out with my own dog. Like, how do you get a dog to sit still long enough to take their portrait image, especially if they're as well lit as the portrait of of your own dog? So I. I teach, I said, it, uh, we, we have a sit stay. So he, he knows if I put him in a sit, he's not to break that sit until, uh, I tell him free. Um, so whether he's in a sit, whether he's in a down, it's like, if you tell you to do a thing, that's where you are. I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it because I need you to do something. So like, and we use it with everything. It's like, if I'm opening the door, you're going to go in a sit because I don't want you running out the door. Uh, so I actually did a TikTok reel. Uh, about the sit stay a while back it's been a couple of weeks now but showing people how to train that sit stay uh, if, if a dog is new to the studio or doesn't know a sit stay first things first is any dog that comes into the space is going to be a little bit excited at first they're going to be like well, i'm in a new spot i gotta check this out and you know because cedric's here all the time they're going to smell cedric they're going to smell other dogs so really at that point it just hang out for a minute let the dog get comfortable and get cool um, and then it's, you know, depending on the dog and their level of training, it's sometimes you may not get them to stay in a position. Uh, you just have to kind of keep 
hoping and, and working. Um, yeah, it's patience. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I mean, it's especially because some dogs are just uncontrollable. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, there's been no training behind it at all. Um, and then, yeah, that, that can be more of a challenge. And, and I talk about that with people before I photograph their pets. It's like, I'm going to do my best to get photos of, of your animals. Um, but it's also an animal, you know, if, if they're not cooperating, we can't force them to cooperate. We're going to do our best. Um, you know, I, uh, a client of mine brought in one of her chickens during a shoot and it's like, it's chicken. We're going to do our best. Um, we got some great photos of the chicken. Luckily the chicken was highly food motivated. So, uh, freeze dried millworms did wonders. Um, but yeah, it just, you have to work with the animals time. Don't force them. And it's, if you try to force a, uh, an animal to do something, it's like, it's like forcing a three-year-old. It's not going to work. Yeah. It's, it's all about motivation. And again, I, re I remember having a chat with, uh, with Kaylee Greer about that. She, she told me she has like your whole bag full of, like squeaky things and like little squeakers and like uh, toys and balls and fluffy things and you know whatever um and and of course treats as well because not all dogs are food motivated like my dog for instance is absolutely not food motivated he just couldn't care less um right. and so toys are the thing for him yeah anything that squeaks anything that looks like a ball you know game on. game yeah exactly but food not so much you know um, in fact often when we're out he won't even take a treat he's just not interested he's too busy right. sniffing around and checking things out to to be interested in food um so with him it's, it's toy motivation that's the that's the thing yeah and I, I keep all those things around for when i'm working with pets cedric isn't uh isn't really food motivated either so when we train i'll have treats and things with me but most of the time i have one of his tug toys as well because his tug toy is like that's a reward he so knowing what the dog likes uh, is useful it's a you know because once they realize oh if i do x i get paid then it's a little bit easier yeah absolutely do you, how do you light uh pet portraits do you use the do you, do you still light them like you would light an ordinary portrait like with soft boxes and things like that yeah, like so. For example, the the photo of Cedric back here, he's lit the exact same way that I light a majority of my portrait clients. So it's a a simple, um, like a four foot octabox as my key light, and I typically have like a six foot fill behind me, and or I'm shooting uh, into a white wall behind me. I have a strobe that'll hit it, uh, but just simple, simple, simple. Uh, especially when photographing a, a dog or a chicken or a pig at one point. Um, you know, like I, if I had a lot more lights out, if, if I have to, if I, and it's for people too, if I have to think about the technical, when I'm working, the portraits aren't going to be successful because I can't focus on the person. So I, I try to make the technical as simple as possible. Yeah. And again, that's, that's, that's a major advantage of using really minimal lights as far as I was thinking. Um, and then just literally set them, set it and forget it. And, and then just focus on the expression and the pose and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, it, it really makes all the difference. Um, in actual fact, you know, that's, that's the main reason behind why recently I changed lighting brands because I just ran into so many, um, problems with the brand that I used to shoot with, uh, because it just wasn't, um, 
in a nutshell, when Nikon switched from DSLRs to to mirrorless cameras, um, the the triggers of that brand that I used to shoot that shall remain nameless, uh, the, the the triggers all of a sudden didn't really adapt very well to um, to the mirrorless hot shoot. Basically, whatever they changed, I don't know whatever it was that they changed, but uh, so it, it it was just a nightmare getting to work properly, and actually it was a nightmare to getting them to uh, to make contact properly with the contacts in a hot shoe. And so, you know, and it got, it became such a pain that eventually I just, I just thought, yeah, I have, to, I have to like eliminate that issue. I need to be done with that and move on um, because I can't be dealing with that. You know, when you're, when you're trying to concentrate on the client, you're trying to relax the, you know, you're trying to relax the client and yes, and yet, it, you know, on the inside, you're, you're like, you're breaking up because you're thinking like, oh no, hopefully not another misfire, you know, because the damn thing isn't making contact and it's just not, not worth it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, you know, I, yeah, I, I can't even add to that. That's perfect. It's spot. If I'm thinking about my gear, we're, we're not having a good day. Yeah. Um, so how do you adapt your style between, you know, to say, um, portraits, boudoir and 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 even pet photography how do you do you make any changes or how do you adapt to that i don't you know i i really view all of them as really the the same thing it, it's really just where am i putting light and shadow and how much shadow do i want um you know to me they're all just still it just it's just portrait um you know, if I, with the boudoir work, especially if I'm trying to do some of the draped shadow stuff, I think a lot more about exactly where I want shadows to go. It's, you know, like if I'm doing a shot of somebody's back, I'm looking at the musculature, musculature of their back, easy for me to say, and going, you know, how, how do I want to cut that up? And so that may, you know, change angles and things like that. But, but overall the setups are free, the, the base uh, of my setups is pretty similar across all three. What's the role does storytelling play in your in your portraiture? Uh, for me personally, uh, the, it's really important. Um, it's important for me that when somebody is viewing the image, they want to know they they can either tell what emotion is is going on like the the portrait i keep going backwards let's go this way there we go so this portrait on my wall it's a, a mom and her baby um you know you can you can see the story between them you you know in her gaze at at him it's there you can just you feel the vibe um there's other times when i'm working with somebody's expression what, what i'm aiming for is that when the viewer experiences that portrait they want to know more that they can they can tell there's something going on behind the eye the brain's working on something and they go what's what's that story or you know somebody looks you know powerful and confident and you know that you can get that sense uh you just get the sense that they are commanding and you know and i think that's intriguing to a viewer um and I, I try to incorporate that in everything that I do, really. Yeah, and for, again, for listeners who 
been following the podcast for a while. This is, of course, something we we talk about a lot when it comes to headshots. So you get to tell the story of the person that you're photographing because ultimately, you know, you'd you'd photograph a CEO of a company in a completely different way um, as you would, you know, I don't know, what's a good example? The intern. <laughs> I'm trying to think of. You know, but you, you know, I don't know that I would actually try to photograph them differently, but what they're going to give me is going to be completely different, you know, it, because of that. I, I think back to my internship in the theater, you know, I knew I was an intern and I, I was pretty good. At least I thought I was pretty good, but I also knew I wasn't at the level you know, here's so like, I didn't, I didn't have high level confidence and low level confidence. <laughs> and and I, I think those things are come through in the photos, like uh, whether somebody wants for them to or not, like there's a subconscious vibe. And so I, I don't think I try to shoot them differently. I just think how they back to what I was saying initially, how, how we're interacting together dictates that bit of story, which is, is interesting. I hadn't really kind of thought about it that way either, but yeah, you, you've made me think about two things today. <laughs> there you go. But I always, you know, I come, I come up against that a lot when I do, in particular, when I do group shots of, um, let's say, I don't know, let's say the office team, right? And, you know, I, I always, I try and pay a lot of attention. Well, no, I, I do pay a lot of attention to, you know, who's who in the photo. And I, I, I always try, you know, I want to make sure that um, I don't make the boss look like he's the intern and the intern look like he's in charge because, you know, that can bring with it a whole other bunch of problems <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. I mean, some, you know, sometimes it's just part of, part of the, part of the contracts, you know, for me, especially when I do, um, when I do corporate shoots, let's say on location in particular, um, actually they're always on location, you know, so like it's sometimes it's part of the whole branding package or whatever. Um, and so I always, you know, I, I try and do that. Um, if it's a group shot, um, I try and do that, of course, with, with posing in particular. So I try to make sure that you can sort of identify, almost like, yeah, identify who's who in the photo, or at least who's in charge, you know, to, to sure. degree. That's, that's always the thing. Um, how, um, are there any so specific genres or themes in, in portraiture that, that you personally find challenging? Off the top of my head, no. Um, I, I don't think so. Now, of course, I say that and I'll wake up, you know, at 4 a.m. and go, oh, what I meant was, oh, there's uh, that thing, yeah. And you know, I'll like send you a million text messages, go put this in the show notes. Um, <laughs> But but no, off the top of my head, no. It's I mean for me, for instance, you know, um, I do shoot a considerable part of what I do. I shoot on location. I mean, I, I talked earlier about you know um, I use my own uh, space, you know, um, in my house as a, as a shooting space. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, I'm you know I'm, I'm paid to be on location to uh, to conduct a shoot at some company's premises, for example, you know, and very. I mean, there are situations where, let's put it this way, there are situations that are challenging, uh, predominantly because either there might not be the right space or the space I'm hired to photograph is 
incredibly boring. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I got. I think I got. Um, I got. I get hired. Uh, I get hired. The first time I got hired uh, to work for a particular construction company, um, you know, the first thing I thought, like, oh well, that's not really something I do. Okay, and then I thought, but the money's good, so you know, surely I can make this work somehow. Um, and this is a company that built distribution centers and distribution set warehouses, basically warehouses yeah. are basically big blue boxes in the countryside. And that's all there's to it. There's not much more to it, you know, and, uh, and you really have to think very hard about how you can make that shoe box basically look interesting, you know? Um, and so, you know, I remember really freaking out about this on the first shoot. And then, um, and then a little bit later, I kind of thought, you know, this is actually, this is a creative challenge. I like it. I don't need to come up with all sorts of different, you know, for me, it's always a, like, it's, um, I have this thing, this, this is what I say to you. This is one particular client that I work with on these sort of projects. And I always say like, you know, depending on what time of the year it is, you know, it's like, okay, well, sun's up at four. I'm going to be there at 4 a.m. Make sure they can open the gates because that's when I'm going to shoot this thing. <laughs> you know, because uh, once you've missed sunrise, these buildings just become drab. So if you want to create any drama or anything of interest with these buildings, you need to have the light, you know. And and some, some of these, you, know, you can imagine like some of these distribution cells are huge. There's no way I can light the exterior of the, of the building really to any, to any effect, you know. So... Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, for me, that's like, that's a majorly challenging, challenging situation. <laughs> yeah. And so for, for me, like I, I really don't leave the studio that often, or, or if I am leaving the studio, it's to go do headshots and most of my on location headshot gigs, they want exactly the style of headshot that I do in the studio. Yeah. So I just pack everything up and take it with me. Um, you know, I, and I, I hit a point a couple of years ago where I just say no to jobs. If somebody, you know, Hey, I want you to come shoot this architecture. And I, no pass. It's not, not my jam. Uh, here, here's who I know that can knock that out of the park for you. It just, it's not what I do. It's not what I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I really don't shoot stuff that I don't want to shoot. And, uh, I'm, I'm a control freak. I, I like the, the studio. Like I'm, I'm in control here. Like I have all the lights and I have my air conditioning and, you know, um, so I, I don't do a lot of outside the space to, to run into those issues. Thankfully, you know, don't, don't want to run into those issues. <laughs> I was trying to outprice them. So I get, this is something I've, you know, I've mentioned on, on the podcast several times before, but, um, so, you know, if you're, if you've heard the story before, dear listeners, then um, then uh, just listen to it again because it's interesting. <laughs> anyway, no, it's been, during the pandemic, um, and it's something I want to talk to you about as well in, in a minute, of course. Uh, but uh, you know, during the pandemic um, in the UK, we had like we were really strict lockdowns, and it was like you know the, the rules, the laws were very draconian. Like you, know, you weren't allowed to leave the house for longer than forty-five minutes. You know, da da. You weren't allowed to have. Um, people that were not in your what they call it family cluster or something you know um you weren't allowed to have people in your house and all the rest of it so for me you know portrait photography went out the window like headshot photography didn't didn't happen you know because you know 
because it couldn't. And even outside, people were just way too freaked out. You know, I remember that, you know, it was that time, especially at the beginning, um, when it would have been like maybe April, March 2020, not April, May 2020, when it first started and everybody was in a major panic about it. Um, you know, that time when like you'd go to the superstore and you come around the corner of an aisle and there'd be another person at the far end of the aisle and they'll completely they'll freak out and you see the fear in their, in their eyes because there'd be like one other human being like, you know, 30 yards away. <laughs> it was that time. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I was like, I was taking on all sorts of work, right? Indiscriminate. Like somebody would call me up and they'd be like, oh, you know, shoot, sh do you shoot products? But 100%, send it over, no problem. <laughs> you know, I'll do that. <laughs> Um, and I had, a, I had a call one day, um, this guy, you know, calls me up and he goes, um, I'm moving house and, uh, I want you to shoot my garden. And I said, well, I don't like, not something I do. Like, you know, I shoot people usually. So and he goes like, yeah, no, I really want you to shoot my garden. And I said, well, you, have you, have you seen my website? And he goes like, yeah, yeah, I've been to your website. Love it. Absolutely love it. It's only got portraits on it, you know. Uh, but I really want you to uh, to come shoot my gun. And I thought, wow, this is weird. I'm like, okay. So I said, like, okay, but I'm going to have to charge you a day rate, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be so expensive. He's going to say no. And so he goes, like, oh, yeah, absolutely. What's your day rate? So I told him, and he goes, like, oh, yeah, fine. And I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, of course, I thought, and he, he said, like, oh, well, you know, he's moving house and he's, he spent like five uh, five years or something, you know, cultivating this garden and he just wanted uh, some good imagery as a, a memento, basically, you know, how to take with him. And and so I expected, I, I don't know what I, I expected, like a perfectly manicured garden, you know, um, English, I don't know, lawn, whatever they call it, you know, and, um, but I phoned a friend of mine as I was, and he, he only lived like two blocks away from me. So it was kind of practical. And so um, I called a friend of mine and I said, like, look, that's my friend Nick. And I said, I looked like, uh, I'm, you know, this has happened. I'm going to go to this job. If I don't call you in an hour, I'll call the police. <laughs> you know? So I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, and anyway, so I get to this house and I look at this house and the garden's a disaster. It's like, totally overgrown crazy like basically somebody spent five years not doing a thing and and that was the garden and so I immediately thought whoa this is like this is very odd you know I don't know I don't ever want to get involved in this anyway so I walk in and there's the guy and so he explains to me that um he said university lecturer and he's basically cultivated this garden to be a natural biotope for insects um and and so the task was to photograph the garden and to basically capture as many insects as possible you know for him uh, yeah as a, as a memento right um for all the work that he's put in and so in the initial craziness and total randomness and chaos of this garden. Turns out this was actually a very deeply thought through project, right? So he's basically created this space for as many species of insects to to live as possible, including like little ponds and all the rest of it. 
And, uh, you know, at first I thought like, well, I've never shot insects before. How, like, where do I find these insects? But then as I walked in, I realized they're everywhere. So it wasn't actually difficult at all. Um, so it turned out to be quite a fun shoot with some really interesting results. Like I said, I'm not an insect photographer at the slightest. Um, but I actually spent a good deal of time there and it was really enjoyable and it was a great day as well. So, so actually I came out with, uh, with some really great photographs of, of a gig that I nearly, nearly declined, (laughs) but he agreed to a day rate. So I got paid very well. So yeah, I'm not complaining. Yeah. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. How did you, um, how did you survive the, the pandemic? What was the impact did it have on you in, um, in Kentucky? Um, so we completely shut down, um, you know, and uh, I oddly like I hit a really zen point with it, like really early. It was just like, I mean, this is happening. I can't do anything about it. So whatever. Um, luckily, here in Kentucky, uh, they did uh, offer unemployment to you know a self-employed folks. So I was able to draw unemployment checks, and I had a project that I had started pre-pandemic. Uh, it was a series of four Bonitas images that I created that I was doing a, a really deep dive edit on. So I was able to just kind of work on that project and just enjoy that process uh, of working on those four pieces. Um, and then right around the time I was finishing up with those, they're like, okay, y'all can go back to work. Great. Now getting thing, you know, getting people to book immediately Actually, that's not true. I had a client the first day we were back, now that I think about it. Um, and we were still at a place where uh, nobody still wanted to be like close, close, or at least I didn't want to be close, close with anybody. And so this guy comes in and he he didn't know how to tie a tie. And so he's like, can you tie my tie? And I was like, absolutely not. I, nope. Um so I ended up talking him through how to how to do it, um, but yeah. And my, once I was back, it was back. Um, and most of well, not most, a lot of my guy clients don't know how to tie ties, which is fascinating. I I do a lot of these. So, <laughs> but no, yeah, so pandemic actually wasn't bad for me. Yeah, you definitely a lot more stylish. I remember um, I had I had a job of about maybe third well. 13 or 14 years ago, um, I started I started a job that required um, some shirt and tie. And, uh, you know, in the British school system, where kids wear school uniforms, they learn how to tie a tie very early on. But I've never been in the British school system since I'm not from around here. So I didn't know that. And uh, so I had to, there were two YouTube videos that I used to watch every morning one with a standard knot and the other one was like a double Windsor or something, depending on what tire I was wearing that day. And I literally had to, because also my brain doesn't work like that. I just don't, I can't remember things like that. So uh, every morning I had to basically get up, get dressed, watch that YouTube video, follow the instructions, <laughs> and then show up in the office pretending I knew what I was doing. <laughs> uh, I did uh, many, it was a couple of years ago, I did an on-location headshot appointment for a bank and like like the ninth or tenth guy that came into the little shooting space that we had, I noticed that all the guys had the exact same knot on their tie. Like they were exact. And so I stopped the guy. I was like, is there a mom out there doing all of your ties? 
And he's like, yeah, no good. And it's like, that's fascinating to me. So no, I, I learned how to tie one very, very young. Um, and I'm, I have no problem wearing them. I know there's a, a lot of guys out there. Who go, oh, I can't wear a tie. It'll choke you. Like, no, it's adjustable. It won't choke you. If it's choking you, your shirt's too small. So get, I digress. Yeah, I, also something I've learned. I absolutely agree. That's something I had to learn the hard way. um what's your uh how do you how do you stay inspired as a as a portrait photographer um i i go through phases um where you know i'll i'll go through a, a big phase where i'm just shooting and creating all the time and having a great time doing it and then I'll get into a phase where I just get burned out and I nothing like anything that I create, whether it's client work, whether it's, you know, trying to do a personal piece, um, I rip it apart. We're like, ah, I hate everything. So I just, I, I guess I'm kind of manic in that way. Um, and I just kind of have to go through my cycles. I'm sure people would say I should see a therapist about that. Um, I also try to, uh, do some personal projects in the year. So like the Bonitas portrait project that I did was, uh, that was just to feed my artistic soul. Um, I did a Persephone series uh, a couple of years ago now. That was just, you know, me to push. I'm working on one now. That's the three graces. Um, and that was just a, literally, a, I've got to do something to, uh, to feed my artist soul. Ben, thank you so much for being our guest on the podcast this week. It's an absolute pleasure and an education. Okay, folks, that's it for today. It was an awesome blast having Ben on the show. And as always, before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 139 with Rafael Weigel, Calgary's very own headshot legend. I'm sure you love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening on the audio version of this podcast or to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fledged video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you're already on YouTube, then, well, drop us a comment, hit the like button, ring that bell, and share with your friends. Your engagement helps us reach a wider audience all over the world.